Good morning. So uh, we are in our fourth uh, week of our Who's Your One series. And uh, in the resources that came along with this series, as all of our campuses are working through it together, um, this video popped up this week, and uh, I was just struck. It's not directly connected to the content today, but I was struck with the, uh, the purposes of the Lord in life. And uh, part of the reason I was struck by it is because we have living examples of faith in the middle of suffering among us in our body. And we watch these people receive a difficult news and we see them say, you know what? God's still God. He's still on his throne. He still loves me. He uh, still fills me with his joy and his peace. And I'm going to declare the good news of Jesus Christ to the very end. And uh, what an amazing thing. And so this morning, uh, if you are, this is totally off the cuff, it's not in the notes. If you are struggling or you're in difficulty and you are maybe in a season of want or need and you are in Christ Jesus, uh, know. And uh, J.D., thanks for the song you sang just before this, um, just that we're trusting in God's sovereignty. But just know that God is in control and he has a purpose and a plan for your life. And part of his purpose and plan for your life is to both demonstrate and declare the good news of the glory of Christ Jesus through your story. And so he is writing that story. And no matter whether or not you are in the brightest, most shining moment in the story, or you are in the darkest valley of your story, that God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And if you are still breathing, he wants to do something great in you and through you. And so can we, just, uh, can we just receive that as just God's truth, that no matter how on the mountain or how far in the valley we are, that we have a God that's trustworthy, he's true, he's got a plan, and that he wants to use you for his glory and the spread of his gospel. Amen? Amen. 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 So this morning, like I said, we, uh, we're in our fourth week in this Who's You One series. Um, we're in Luke chapter 16 today, beginning in verse 19. We'll kind of begin to dig into that here in a few minutes. We've been encouraging you as we've worked through this series to identify one uh, person that you have a relationship with, uh, whether that be through your work or in your neighborhood or um, whether that be in your family or among your friends or um, at your school that the Holy Spirit uh, leads you and guides you to identify that one person. And we've encouraged you to actually um, take the bookmark that's on your chairs, and there's a little tear-off um, that uh, kind of pulls off a little blue card, and we encourage you to write your person's name down here and begin to pray for that person and ask God to use your life and your story and your, um, what God's doing in, in you to um, declare the good news of who Jesus is. And so um, we've had some of these turned in, which we're grateful for, and you'll find them um, tacked up on a little uh, um, cork board by the door. And so if you're in the room today and the Holy Spirit over these weeks has led you to the name of someone who you know needs Jesus, I want to encourage you to write their name down. There's a prayer guide on the table there too. Take one of those with you, tack it on the, on the um, board, and the pastors and leaders in the church will begin to join you in praying for the people that God wants to um, catalyze your story and your life uh, to see that person come to know the good news of Jesus Christ for themselves. And so that's, that's kind of where we've been. We've been trying to figure out in God's word in different ways um, how to bring us to a position of conviction 
and deep concern for people who um, don't know Christ. And um, in God's Word in these weeks, we've been uh, calling the church to recognize that every aspect of our lives, every part of our story, um, every relationship that He's given us is for a purpose. And that we don't uh, live, we're going to talk about this here in a few minutes, we don't live for um, all the created things. But instead, we live for the glory of Christ that's eternal and that he's given us a a definite time that we will live and that we will die. And he's given us the responsibility to be his hands and his feet and his voice in the world. And uh, he wants to use all of our story to see that good news declared. And so um, hopefully that brings a little um, clarity to the purpose of your life. And so I'm super glad that you're here this morning. Like I said, I don't know what you're coming in here with, but um, we're talking about a subject if you're new to us and uh, you're someone that maybe is walking in the world and not in the churches actively, you may have a perception that this is all the church talks about, the subject we're going to cover today. But can I tell you, it's actually a subject we don't talk about very much, but it's a subject we should talk about some. And it's the subject of hell. That's the subject for today. So this morning, there's uh, about half of you that you're going, you know what, this is for someone. It's not me, it's for someone, and I'm super glad they're here today. You know, and then there's some of you, they're like, oh man, shoot, I came on the wrong Sunday. And right now, you're feeling like you want to get up and run out the door and get in the car and not come back, right? Um, But I want to encourage you. Um, This is a subject that I believe is going to encourage you um, to understand yourself better. I think it's going to help you understand your purpose in this world more as it relates to others. And I think it's going to help give you clarity on the love of God. So if all of that seems like it doesn't go with hell, just sit, sit tight. Sit with us, uh, join with us, uh, embrace this time that we have together. What do you think of, though, when you, when you think of the word hell? I, we're not going to do like raise your hand or anything, but I'm going to guess that um, you think of flames and maybe a lake of fire and a, a red guy with a tail and a pitchfork and some horns kind of going, <laughs> right? I mean, something like that. I don't know. Um, maybe it's suffering or it's pain or it's difficulty. Um, sometimes, uh, confessionally, most of you probably aren't old enough for this, but um, I remember this little cartoon that depicted a guy named Jerry Garcia, and he was supposed to be God, and there was this little devil, and they had conversations back and forth. It was a cartoon like on MTV a long time ago. And so you may have, who knows what your perspective is on the devil or on hell. But we're going to talk a little bit about this today. And uh, hopefully give us a little clarity on why, at least, we won't understand all the, the realities of hell today. Because the truth of the matter is there's some mystery in it. We only have a couple of texts in Scripture that, that talk about it at all. And there's some people that think like the actual fire is more metaphorical. And there's some that feel like it's more literal. And so there's some things about hell that we're honestly not going to understand fully until um, we're either there or we're in heaven with the Lord and we're seeing like this guy in the text is seeing. And so... Um, we're going to leave the mystery the mystery, but we're going to talk about, well, why should we talk about hell? What, what sort of clarity does a conversation about hell bring um, to us, to our minds, and to our lives? And so um, we're going to talk about hell today. If you're counting, I'm up to 12 instances of saying hell. And so, you know, um, if you want to keep count, at the end you can be like, that was 743 times you said hell today. And then we'll have it all done for like months and months, and then we'll come back to it later. So um, write this down. I've got three things I want to invite you to write down this morning. 
three things. Um, the first thing that I think uh, hell brings into clarity for us, um, learning about hell brings into clarity for us, is help, hell helps us understand ourselves. Hell helps us understand ourselves. So um, this text we're in, in Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31, it's, it's a parable and it has a couple of characters. Um, who are they? You have a rich guy, a rich man, and you have a poor man named Lazarus. So a rich man without a name and a poor man named Lazarus. Um, commentators over the years have drawn attention to the fact that the rich man doesn't have a name and that the poor man has a name. And honestly, if you look at Jesus's parables, there's not another actually proper name mentioned in any other parable in scripture that Jesus spoke. And so um, this guy and his role and his function, it's, it's pretty important. Um, anybody know what the name Lazarus means? Anybody? I'm sure there's somebody in here that does, but Lazarus means God is my help. This guy's living in God is my help, isn't he? But the rich man certainly is not in the story. So in a way, um, this text is about um, who God helps and who God doesn't help in a way. Let's focus, though, for a little while as we seek to answer this, um, this, uh, this idea of um, understanding ourselves through the lens of, of hell. Let's, um, let's think about the rich man for just a minute. You know, um, like most of us, he probably wasn't an, an atheist. He probably wasn't a pagan. He probably wasn't uh, a God-hater. As a matter of fact, if he was a rich man in this Jewish culture, he Culturally, he probably believed in God. He probably went to the temple. He probably um, even worshiped God and gave some of his money to God. Um, but he missed it. He missed it. Um, at the time in, uh, in Israel, most people who were, were wealthy, they had a belief in God and belief in the Old Testament Bible. Um, this is a man who might have prayed every day. He might have tried to obey the laws of God and the Bible. But here he is in hell without a name, without help from the Lord. So why? Why is this guy who in all likelihood is a pretty faithful guy who, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, probably looked more like us than the person that you envision that ought to go to hell. Why is he there? Like what happened? What did he miss? Look at me at verse 25 for just a second. The text says, Abraham says to the rich man, Abraham says to the rich man, remember that in your lifetime, you had your good things, the things that you built your life on. Hear that again. Remember, remember in your life, remember that in the, your lifetime, remember over the course of your life, all the good things that you had, remember the things that you, you built your life on. You picking it up? A little bit of what he's laying down? I have a question. Um, what are you building your life on? This is a super important question. It's actually a critical question. Like, it's an eternally critical question. What are you building or who are you building your life on? What is your life's highest good? What is the thing you really live for? What has ultimate value? What gives meaning to your life? What gives you a sense of who you are? Think about that with me for just a second. Take a little bit of an evaluation of your life. Like, what makes you feel like you are you? 
whatever your best thing is, the highest thing with the highest value, that thing is your identity. That person is your identity. It's determining your worth and all that is good in you. You know, um, the rich man in this parable, he had, he had some good things. Uh, he has some, some really good things. Notice the youth, use, use of the past tense here in the text. Um, the status and the wealth, has, it's, it's the basis of his identity. And now that status and that wealth are gone. There's, there's no more of what was him left. So there's nothing of him left in the story. He was a rich man or he was nothing. Without his wealth, he's gone. He's a nameless Faithless, uh, faceless person, um, and he's without help at this point. And it's because of what he built his life on. It's because of what he found to be ultimate for him. So, so listen to me, church. We build our lives on all sorts of things. We build our lives on, on our money. We build our lives on our career or students, our future careers, the hopes that we have for our own lives. We build our lives on our, on our families or on our children, um, on our looks, on your relationship with your parents or with your spouse or with your I hope to have a spouse someday. Um, we look for power. We look for approval. We look for comfort. We look for control. And when we Embrace these things as fundamental to our significance and to our security and to the realities of our lives, then we are embracing that as, uh, as the uh, determiner of our identity, the determiner of our worth, rather than Christ. And so there's, there's really only one throne. You know, we like to believe practically that we have, there's a lot of thrones and several things can sit on the thrones of our lives. But the truth of the matter is there's only one throne and either Jesus sits there or he does not sit there. And so all of these things that determine our worth and our value and our identity, either they sit on the throne of our lives or Christ sits on the throne of our lives. So often people say that sin is doing things that displease God. And in one respect, I mean, that's true. Um, God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat that fruit. And what did they do? They went right over to the tree. And we, Anna Claire actually asked me this morning in the car, how long between the time he said don't and they, and they didn't? And I said, I don't really know. You know, you know, we don't really have an answer to that. But they indeed walked right over to the tree and they picked up the fruit and they, they disobeyed. And so in a sense, like God said no, they said yes, and um, it was sin. And we have the fall uh, there in the early uh, chapters of the book of Genesis. But um, is that all that sin is? Uh, doing things that displease God. Uh, in one respect it is, but I think that you can see this in layers. Like there's, there's varying perspectives, and depending on how big a picture you want to paint of sin or how focused of a, a picture you want to uh, paint of sin, you can also see sin as embracing an identity, identity that's contrary to the identity that um, God has created for you. When you do this, you're building your identity on something besides God, and you're, you're, you're listening to lies and embracing an identity in something else that's not the identity that God um, designed for you as, as an image bearer of the King of Kings. 
Um, when we turn good things or created things into ultimate things and they determine who we are, then that's also um, sin. So the particular actions, that's like zooming in really close on what sin is and recognizing um, our, our embracing of things that determine our, our identity other than God is kind of more of a big kind of zoomed out perspective on sin. But it's all sin. It's all sin. And this misplaced focus is what starts um, what I want to call a spiritual fire in, in, your, in your heart and in your mind. Uh, and I don't mean a good spiritual fire. I mean a fire that burns your life to the ground when it has its way. What do you mean, Pastor Matt? What, what do you mean a fire that burns in my heart that eventually burns my life to the ground? I mean that you were born with a fire in your heart, a desire to sin, a desire to misplace what determines your identity. You were born with a desire to rebel against the Lord. And here's, here's a way I want, something I want to tie it to that maybe will help us gain a better understanding. Um, we were born in sin, and it's as if we tasted it for the first time when we took our first breath, but then over time we became addicted to it. And we did it in a willful way at some point, but then it just, you know, it's just a part of who we are. It's our nature too. And it grew and it became out of control. And, you know, um, that very first sin damned us, but man, it just continues to lock us um, up in a deeper and deeper way. You know, uh, we know a little bit about addiction in our church. You know, we've walked, every one of us, with some form of addiction um, towards something at some point. And then there's people in our church that we've walked life with where their addiction is more public. So we have a sense of what addiction is like. And, you know, um, addiction leads to isolation. Don't we know that? It leads to isolation. Um, Oftentimes, we lie to defend ourselves when it comes to addiction, right? Um, Eventually, we find ourselves blaming blaming everyone else for our own problems. You say, nobody understands me and everyone's against me. This is sort of the way addiction kind of plays out. Another part of addiction is denial, the inability to see what's really happened, and you get more and more and more out of touch with reality. And, uh, you know, this is what's happened to people as it relates to, to sin, like, we're sinners, and there may be a points in our life that we see sin more clearly than other points if we're not in Christ Jesus, but the truth of the matter is we just kind of get blinded to the reality of our own sinfulness, and it controls us, and we uh, don't realize it controls us, and we're in denial of the fact that sin controls us, and we're sinners. It's who we are because we've embraced sin in the macro and in the, in the micro, you know, the particular sins and We've embraced an image that's different than what God designed us to have. So um, every single person, religious or not religious, uh, moral or immoral, um, is addicted to um, really establishing and grounding his or her identity in something other than God. And we're blind to it oftentimes. Imagine this addiction getting gradually worse forever. 
Consider what it would be like to worship uh, if your worship of the created things grew and grew forever in a heart and life that does not know and love God or have access to the love and the fruits of the Spirit and peace and joy and grace and patience. Like imagine the ultimate end of that story if your life didn't end at 75 or 80, but instead went on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And it just continued. The fire stirred up and it stirred up and it stirred up and it stirred up and it stirred up and stirred up. And you can see the bottom of life here on earth and how that might look. But can you imagine a million years from now without the intervention of God, what that might be like? Are we starting to get a sense of what hell is like? You'd end up destroying everything you love. Your bad temper and your jealousy and your anger, they would win. And you would destroy... um, all that you made ultimate. And then you'll be left with nothing but hatred for yourself and hatred for God, and that's hell. You're separated from God, you hate God, you hate yourself, and you're filled with hate, bearing suffering of your own addictions, and sure, there might be fire too. But it's terrible. You're separated, you're angry, you're insane over the ultimate end of replacing God with something that was made that does not last forever. So our text confirms um, this understanding of hell. You know, like I said, there's a mystery to hell, but uh, and it, I, I think that hell is a physical place, and I think that there are some physical realities to hell that are terrible, but I, I think that there's also some very human things about, about hell, some ultimate end of our own, of our own choosing. You know, we don't like to think that This thing called hell is of our own choosing, but to not choose the Lord is to choose a different identity that ultimately leads to hell. Notice something else. In the text, he strongly insinuates that God didn't give him um, this person that's in hell enough information. Do Do you see that in the text? When he asks Lazarus to go to his five brothers and to warn them about hell, he subtly is hinting at the fact that he didn't get enough information himself. Notice, notice something else. There's several just little things to notice here. The rich man does not ask um, to get out of hell. I mean, I think he knows better. But instead, he tries to get Lazarus to come to hell. <laughs> Do you see that? This guy has so fully embraced his identity as someone who has, has uh, ruled over Lazarus that he wants Abraham to send Lazarus back down to serve him in hell. His identity is so wrapped up in his status as a, as a rich ruler and oppressor of Lazarus that even in hell, he wants Lazarus to come give him a cup of water. Just a finger in the water. Just make this guy who served me his whole life, who ate breadcrumbs under my table, make him come down here and bring me a little water. So (laughs) to sum it all up, hell is a freely chosen identity based on something else other than God that goes on forever, that has physical realities that are terrible and painful and filled with suffering as well. But even while you um, disintegrate You refuse to admit what hell is. You think that it's God who has cast you into hell. But the truth of the matter, it's it's a self-chosen identity and reality that's led to its its ultimate end. 
There are only two kinds of people in the, in the end. Those who say to God, your will be done, and those who God says to them, um, thy will be done. Did you catch that? There's only two kinds of people in the world. The people who say, your will be done, Lord. And the people who's, who God says to them, your will be done, son. I'll give you a little application as it relates to this, this first point. Seeing myself as a spiritual addict apart from um, the intervening grace of Jesus or the help of God is, is important. Like as a Christian, seeing myself as an, as an addict to, a, to an earthbound identity, um, that Jesus stepped in and um, redeemed is incredibly important. It's crucial for any addict to know how to find help in dealing with what's going on or in his life. Like, if you're an addict, you need to know where your help comes from, right? So, knowing that you have a problem, if you're familiar with this process, knowing that you have a problem and recognizing where your help comes from is a major part of the, 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 the journey to wholeness. And in our case, as it relates to hell, knowing that we are choosing an identity and a set of, of, of things that we are valuing to the degree that they have replaced God on the throne of our lives, like we're choosing that, um, uh, knowing that that is our decision to remain there rather than receive the gift that Christ has to offer, uh, it's important our understanding of, of what it looks like for us to embrace Christ, and, and it's important for us in understanding what it looks like to declare the good news of Christ to those um, who are walking blind and in, the, in darkness. Because they're making a choice just like you're, you and I are making a choice. They just don't even know the choice that they're making. So who are you really? Have you got a core identity a name based on what God has done for you in Jesus, a name based on being a child of the King in the mission of getting, um, getting to the new heaven and the new earth, or are you just a businessman or a businesswoman? Or are you just a mom or a dad? Or are you just an artist or a mother? Or are you just a student? Or are you just someone who hopes for a better future? Or are you just someone who longs for a mate? Are you just, you know, none of these things are bad in themselves. But what's determining your identity? Is it those things that are earthbound? Or, um, or is it Jesus? Are you willing to take a look? Whether you've been in church forever or not, are you willing to take a look as deep into yourself as you possibly can? And see this doctrine of hell and come to an understanding of your own heart and repent and receive the free gift of a new identity that's found in Jesus Christ alone. It may mean that these things that are your identity that you've built your life on, this wealth, this sense of security, this provision for your family, this, you know, whatever it is, it may be that those things change and shift or go away completely in your embracing of Jesus Christ. But the Lord, he cares for the birds. How much more does he care for you? So when you think about what hell is and the nature of hell, it helps us to understand ourselves. And when it comes to your one, 
If you have not wrapped your identity in Jesus, they never will. So if you feel the Spirit of God like compelling you to be an impact in someone else's life, but your identity is in um, having a perfect family, or your identity is in making money, or your identity is in X, Y, Z, like they're going to emulate you and join you in, in, in hell. Like we need to have our identity as, as the God's proclaimed people in Christ Jesus so that when they begin to follow Christ and they look at us, they go, man, look at what they've laid down. Look at the struggle that they've had, but look how good Jesus is. You tracking with me? Here's the second thing to write down. All the rest of them will be shorter. <laughs> that one was a, a long point. Second, hell helps us have compassion on other people. Hell helps us have compassion on other people. Now, this one connects a little bit better in our minds, doesn't it? Like it makes a little more sense on the surface. You know, there are many people who are afraid that if you believe in a God of judgment or of hell, uh, if you believe in a doctrine of hell, then you're going to have a disdain for other people. Anybody ever wrestled with that or thought that? Like if I believe in hell or I talk about hell or I, you know, embrace this concept of hell, then I'm just going to be one of these bigoted people that are like, if you don't believe what I believe, you're going to hell. And then everybody around me is going to be like, that person's so close-minded and is a terrible person. I mean, that's kind of our perspective on, uh, on people that, um, that always talk about hell or embrace hell. You know, there's a uh, writer name uh, that did an article one time on Pastor Rick Warren. And in her article, she, she made it clear at the beginning. She said, I really like him personally. You love when a story starts like that or a conversation starts like that? Man, I, I, really, I really like Daniel on a personal level, but, you know, I mean, that would be terrible, right? Like, nobody wants to hear that. But she started her article about uh, Pastor Rick, and she said, I really like him personally, but she said uh, about his beliefs, she said this, his faith is inherently divisive. At the end of the day, non-Christians, however devout, are lost. What are the prospects of equal citizenship for those of us who are damned by the refusal to be born again? What she's saying is, you can't treat us as equal citizens if you think we're lost. You can't treat us as, as, uh, as loved people if you think we're damned. You're going to oppose us because you're in and we're out. You're going to disdain us. You're going to feel like it's okay to marginalize us. Isn't that the world's perspective on someone who embraces hell? In some ways, what she said is understandable, but it clearly does not understand um, what the Bible says. about. She clearly does not understand what the Bible says about hell at all. Hell is not something um, imposed simply by God's violence. Like God is a judge. He is a just judge. But we also have a responsibility in this thing called hell. In fact, I find verse 25 of our text pretty, uh, pretty intriguing. I, I mentioned it kind of off the cuff a minute ago. Um, but when Abraham looks down from heaven into hell to speak to the rich man, this um, absolutely out of touch with the reality man who's wrapped his identity in something other than Jesus, his riches, notice what he calls him. What does it say? Son or my child. Do you, do you hear disdain in Abraham's voice? My son. My son, my child, you know, most commentators say that there's real sadness, kind of a sense of tragedy in Abraham at this point in the text. Anyone who believes the Bible looks with great sadness at people who are on their way to hell. 
There's no sense in which we would disdain those who are going to hell. As a matter of fact, um, it's not pity, it's sorrow. It's deep sorrow. When we Christians, filled with the love and compassion and the grace of Jesus, understand the pain and loneliness and even insanity and horrors of hell, something happens in our hearts. Compassion for those without hope grows, and we begin um, to have a my son heart towards those who are lost in darkness. We begin to see our, our neighbors and our classmates and our family members and our friends and our coworkers with different eyes, with eyes of compassion and with sorrow, knowing that their identities are wrapped in something other than Jesus Christ, knowing that they will lose everything, knowing that anger and hatred and bitterness will in, eventually consume them, and it breaks our hearts. It, it breaks our hearts to know the ultimate end without an identity wrapped in Jesus Christ for those people, even our, our worst enemies, when we recognize the realities of hell and where all of this is going, God even gives us a heart of compassion for our worst enemies. Jesus, the Bible teaches that Jesus came to die for his enemies. He says, great, you know, um, that... that um, uh, scripture teaches that we're to love our enemies and pray for those who despitefully use us. And so we see Christ loving his enemies in the cross. And when we get a, a picture of, of hell that, that looks like this, a biblical picture of hell, then compassion for, for our friends, for our loved ones, and, and even for our enemies only, only grows. We begin to want to be the hands and feet of Jesus in their life because we have a deep burden for their future. So hell, hell helps us um, in our relationship with others, have compassion in our relationship with others. It's not a us against them. It's an us for them change. It's not an us against them the in, or an in and out. It's an us who have come to know the good news of a changed identity in Christ Jesus who are for them in every aspect of our lives, in every effort of our lives. So finally, um, this one's the one that everybody's like, what? Um, hell helps us know the love of God. Hell helps us know the love of God. Finally, belief concerning hell is necessary for knowing the love of God. So wait a minute. What, is, what do you mean, Pastor Matt? This, this is a terrible idea um, to tie the love of God and... Um, you know, this concept of hell together. It's interesting. Uh, I was talking to Jessica Carpenter earlier this week, and she said, uh, you know, in children's area in the Sunday school hour, we're talking about the love of God. And so if any of those kids come down, they're going to be super confused. And I said, actually, if the Lord gives them the ability to understand or their parents and their parents disciple them in the truth of God's word, then um, they will see God's love more clearly. Look at the end of our passage what does the rich man ask of Abraham? He asks for his five brothers. Um, he says, I want a miracle. Send Lazarus back. So imagine with me in your mind for a second. You got the five brothers there. Lazarus is in a tomb somewhere. and here go Now, there was another Lazarus that this actually happened to, but we're not talking about the same guy here. But imagine that Lazarus just went, and it's like, um, you know, the living dead, and now he's alive. And 
he shows up, he pops out of the ground, and all the brothers are sitting there, and uh, Lazarus is resurrected, and maybe he still has a little bit of a smell, and uh, Lazarus pops out, and he goes, hey guys, there is a hell! You better do whatever I tell you to do. You do not want to go there. But Abraham tells the rich man that that approach would never work. Fear of hell and damnation will never change a human heart. Listen with me. Fear will never change a human heart. The fear of hell will never keep you out of it. It won't put the fire out. Now, there's even ministries, even in the city, but ministries around the country where the whole purpose is to um, show hell and scare people into the kingdom of God. But Scripture's teaching here that if a dead man rose from the dead and said, here's how scary hell is, that it would not work. Scripture says that. So, I mean, this isn't what the sermon is about, but you could make a case for the guys who are like Turner Burn, um, Sanctifier French Fry down on Bourbon Street and be like, hey, you know what? Fear is never going to do it, you know, um, based on these, these truths we're talking about. Um, fear of hell and damnation will never change a human heart. Fear of hell will never keep you out of it. Um, it will not put the fire out. So again, what is the fire? What is wrong with you and me? What is wrong with the world? Self-centeredness, self-absorption, me, 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 rather than you, 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 rather than Jesus. That's what's wrong. So when you scare people, when you say it's better to be good because of the fear, fear of hell and damnation, they won't end up being good for the goodness sake they'll, uh, or for God's sake or for his pleasure. Instead, they're going to um, be good for their own sake. It's going to be more about their own selfishness. When leading somebody to faith in Jesus Christ with a fear tactic, when we do that, it's not about leading them to faith in Jesus Christ. It's about scaring them. And their motivation is not embracing an, a, a, a good and merciful Savior um, that wants to love them and walk with them. Their motivation is something far different than that. Their motivation is their, themselves. It's not the glory of Christ or the goodness of Christ or knowing Christ. It's, it's a fear. They're not embracing Jesus. They're running away from something. In other words, God will still um, be nothing more than a means to an end to get the things upon which they're building their identity. Thus, getting moral. If, if, if the heart of the gospel is not right, then you're going to come into the church, you're going to seek morality, you're going to start going to church, you might start giving, you might start doing all of the, the external things of church life, you might start reading the Bible, uh, all done out of fear of hell all done because we fear the flames. But really what all we've done is rearranged the selfishness, rearranged the pride, rearranged the evil heart. If fear won't change the heart, then, then what will? What will change the heart? Love will change the heart. Love will change the heart. Radical unconditional love is the only thing that will take our mistrustful, our um, in denial, our um, 
conniving little hearts and shock them into a whole new way of living and being. Only the love of Christ seen in the cross of of Christ, in the mercy and grace of Christ, can compel a, a heart to change. Only a heart that embraces by faith a Savior and a King and a Lord and a friend, um, only a heart like that receives the power of the Spirit of God who leads someone to a transformed life. It's not fear that does that. It's a radically re- reorienting our lives around this one who has loved us by going to the cross himself. Jesus tells us sort of indirectly this, this same thing in our text today. The rich man says, if my brothers could just see a sign, then everything would be okay. But as we've noted, Abraham says, that, uh, that, uh, says no to this approach. His refusal to do so is su- supposed to make you think of something. It's supposed to make you think about Jesus rising from the dead. But is even that enough to believe that You see Jesus rise from the dead? No. The key to know why Jesus died, which is shown in the writings of Moses and the prophets, it was God's will to crush Jesus, Scripture says. As Isaiah points out, we look upon Jesus and we're appalled. He was disfigured beyond any human appearance. And his form was marred beyond any human likeness. The Lord made him a guilt offering for us. And by the result of his suffering, his horror, his terror, God is satisfied. Do you not know how much Jesus loves you unless you know how much that he suffered? It's the suffering of Jesus, the love demonstrated in the suffering of Jesus, that Jesus calls us to trust in and embrace by faith. He said, I should imagine that a friend comes to see me and says, Hey, I was at your house. Can you imagine? I was at your house the other day and a bill came due and you weren't here, so I paid it for you. If that happened to you, what would you do? Well, it would depend on how much the bill is, wouldn't it? If it was a dollar and my next door neighbor, Jake, said a bill came due and I paid it for you. And I said, well, how much was it? And he said a dollar. I would be like, man, high five. Thank you so much. You know? Maybe I'd give him the dollar back. Maybe I wouldn't, but he wouldn't care because it's a dollar. But if a bill came due and it was the entire mortgage payment on my house, which is still a pretty good bit. I've only been there a few years and it's 30 year, you know? And then I came home and he said, hey, a bill came due and I paid your house off. My reaction would be different than high five. Do you want your dollar back? I'd fall on my knees before my neighbor, Jake, and I would be like, brother. And I would shed a whole lot of tears because I'd be like, freedom, you know, no more bills on the house, right? And then I would say, I love you. Sorry, this is kind of awkward, I'm I'm sure. I love you, Jake. And uh, Jake would be like, man, I love you too, man. It's, it's because, I, you know, I, I love you and it's, it's fantastic. We're friends, high five. And I'd be like, no, no, no. You have my whole life. Like, take it. What do you need from me? I'll cut your yard for the next 50 years. I'll wash your car every other day until I die. You know, we would have a different approach than, you want your dollar? Yeah. 
It's why I think that it's uh, really important that we, um, we have an understanding of, of hell and understand what Jesus bore for us. Like if our, if our motivation in all of this is fear, then we're embracing self. But if we see what Christ has done for us, and it's infinitely more than a dollar, like it's the death, it's the death of God's son, then it requires, because of our love for this one who died for us, it requires our, our whole lives, a change of complete identity. I would be saying to my friend Jake, I will be your son. Even though I'm older than you, I'll be your son. You tell me to do whatever you want me to do. And in the same way, Jesus died for us, and I'm saying, I will be your son. You tell me whatever it is that you want me to do. You hold the keys to my life. You are my identity. I change my name. Because we realize that the hell Jesus bore for us um, was so terrible that when we see it, we, we fall on our, on our faces in admiration, love, and gratitude, giving everything over to the one who took our place. So... Um, Hell, the hell Jesus bore. The hell that um, that we see in in our future apart from Jesus Christ, and we recognize that Christ took our place, and now we don't have to bear that hell. Like that love for Christ compels us um, to embrace Christ. It helps us. This view of hell helps us to see the love of God more clearly. So. How do we respond to a message on hell like this today? It was a little long today when Pastor Augustine's not here in the back, kind of going like this. I tend to do that. So, you know, we're, we're to the end. But the parable in Luke 16, uh, 19 through 31, you could probably preach this uh, 20 different ways. There's a whole lot of different things you could say about this text. You could spend a whole sermon series in this one little section. Um, but what do we want to draw from these, from these two characters, the rich man and the poor man today? And what do we want to draw from um, what we've learned uh, about hell today? Um, first, if you're not a Christian today, now, that's a precarious statement. Usually you blow by that statement and then you say, if you're not a Christian, do this. And you kind of, it's kind of, but pause there if you're not a Christian today. So everyone in the room, pause there. Today, if you are here and you have been in church your entire life or not, and you are here and you recognize that your identity is wrapped up in anything other than Jesus Christ, you need to give your life to Jesus. Even if you've been baptized three times somewhere along the line, even if um, you've been in the church, uh, even if you've given your tithes, even if you've sang all the songs, even if you've read the Bible um, every day for the last 25 years, like if your identity is not in Jesus Christ, if you've not embraced Christ as the Lord and King of your life, In light of what we've talked about today concerning, concerning hell, for, for heaven's sake, embrace Jesus. Embrace Jesus. Surrender the keys to your life. Surrender your plans. Surrender your identity. Surrender um, all of it and say, Christ, I am yours. So if if you're not in Christ today, if you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to see hell as the ultimate end of, of choosing to live your life your own way in the identity that you are willfully 
embracing. Recognize that there's nothing that you could do to save yourself, but here's the good news. Jesus, in his great mercy, took your place, and you're sitting by his sovereignty in this place, and you're hearing the truth of the word of God, and the spirit is at work right now, and those those um, second guesses and those doubts that you're having right now, and the struggle you're having about what to do next, um, it is it is all compelled by the Spirit stirring your heart. So love the one who loved you first. Embrace the one who um, uh, uh, spread out his arms in full embrace. Embrace him um, and the new identity that he has for you. If you're a Christian, let the love and peace of Christ dwell in your heart richly. Remember where you were headed. We were all headed there. Remember, you were on the hell train. And somewhere along the line, Jesus plucked you. He pulled you off. His grace and his love compelled you to place your faith in Jesus And the result of that is, in this new identity, like you're embracing all of the purposes and plans that God has for, for your life, but your life ruled by him. You're recognizing that at least a part of that is to um, identify and serve one or two or three or four or 20 or 100 or 1,000 people over the course of your life um, and to share your story and to demonstrate the grace of God and to declare the good news and to see them lay down the uh, identity that they have that's earthbound and to embrace an identity that is in Christ Jesus alone. You know, your, your purpose isn't the job you do right now. Your purpose is to know and live for Jesus. And a fruit of that is to walk in the grace of God in your story and to declare the good news to others. I'm super thankful for what Christ has done. I'm really grateful um, for the story and for some truths concerning um, hell that open our eyes. Open our eyes to help us see ourselves more clearly. That uh, open our eyes to our purposes and give us compassion for those who need Jesus. I'm thankful. So when you come in and you hear preaching a sermon on hell, uh, know that there are some terrible things concerning hell that we can talk about. But embracing the truth concerning hell also helps us to see ourselves better, helps us to love the world around us, and helps us to know the love of God. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word today. Um, I'm really, I'm struck with something preaching this message in front of this crowd. I'm struck with... Um, with the 
way your grace in your redeemed people in this room and the way your grace has worked its way out of their lives and no matter what their circumstances are, that um, they're centered on loving Christ, having faith in Christ, and demonstrating and declaring the goodness of Christ to the world around them. I'm struck by those people. I'm struck by the example that many across this room are setting for us in faith and faithfulness. They understand themselves. They understand what Christ has done for them. They understand their purpose in this world to be the hands and feet and voice of Christ, the compassionate hands and feet and voice of Christ in the world. And they're growing ever more every day in their love for God. Lord, I pray that um, you would lead every person in this room to embrace fully the identity that you want them to have in Christ Jesus so that we might um, pour out our lives knowing and loving God and uh, demonstrating and declaring the good news of the gospel. God, we pray for the, all the ones that have been chosen that your spirit has led us to. Father, we want to lift those people before you. Uh, And we just want to say to you, use our lives in whatever way you deem necessary, whatever way you deem holy and good. Um, Use our lives for the sake of your glory in them, Um, the the salvation of Christ coming to life in them. Lord, whether that's... um, like the lady in the video, that we uh, that they see our suffering and they see the goodness of Christ in our suffering, or whether it's just simply through us sharing the good news that we, we know from your word, Lord, um, use our lives, use our stories um, to um, demonstrate and declare the goodness of Christ in the world to the ones that you are leading us to, to share with. Um, Father, we want to love you more every day, and uh, we thank you that we can see um, your love in the cross and that it compels us to, to love you and to love one another and to love the world around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, this morning, um, as we uh, sing a little bit here at the very end, uh, I'm going to be back over here kind of by the coffee and the donuts uh, during this last song. If, if you're in the room today and you're like, you know what, I've never embraced uh, an identity that's in Christ Jesus. Like, I have gone to church and I kind of do my thing, but I want to lay my whole life down to Jesus and say, you're in control. Like, I want to encourage you. You can go before the Lord in prayer. God, I give you my life. Here's my life. I embrace the goodness of Christ Jesus, the salvation and forgiveness of Jesus. I'm giving my life over to you. You can do that in your chair, but um, I'd love to either walk through that with you in prayer or after you walk through that, come find me and you say, man, I'm embracing Christ Jesus today for the very first time and I just need you to pray for me and I need to figure out what's next. And man, nothing would excite me more. Like my prayer is on the back end of a sermon like this that there's there's a bunch of people. And um, we're trusting that the Lord is going to, going to do that. So, um, so come and respond, either in worship or in crying out to the Lord, respond.